This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Richard Whitaker, in which he brings his considerable interviewing skills to bear on interviewing the mystical positivist hosts, myself, Stuart Goodnick, and Rob Schmidt. Richard Whitaker is the co-founder with Rue Harrison of the nonprofit Society for the Recognition of Art and founding editor in 1998 of the magazine Works and Conversations. Earlier, he founded The Secret Alameda. He is also the West Coast editor of Parabola magazine. Although Whitaker has a background in philosophy and clinical psychology, he has done graduate work at the GGU in Berkeley. His connections with art go back over 40 years and include photography, ceramics, painting, and sculpture. Well, okay, thank you too for making the time for this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Our pleasure. I'd like to start, and I'd like to start getting a little bit of information, sort of biographical stuff from each one of you. So maybe I speak for a little while with. Uh, one of you, and then spent spent a little time with the uh, with the other one, instead okay. of you know right back and forth every every uh, second. So, so uh, let me start with you, uh, Stuart. And I thought rather than going back very far, I would I would just like to go back to your uh, your college years, and you know I I read on your website that. Uh, you you have a degree in physics from Caltech, right? That's okay. Tell me a little bit about Caltech and about how you got, how you ended up at Caltech and why physics. Well, I in uh, high school I had a fairly general education, so I was uh, uh, interested in science and math, but also history and English. And but I had the idea that science was the direction I wanted to go in, and I think my uh, sensibility or my inclinations are more towards engineering in the sense that I like abstraction, but I also like abstraction when it's uh, put in service of solving a particular problem. Mm-hmm. But um, I applied to a lot of different universities and um, ended up uh, being recruited by Caltech. You know, partly I think they, um, uh, saw that I was uh, wavering a little bit because I had a more general interest in different uh, uh, topics rather than just like hardcore science. And they uh, offered me some uh, small scholarship or uh, uh, to, you know, uh, a freshman scholarship to join. And that was enough to kind of pull me over the edge. And so I got into uh, Caltech as a freshman and what I'd say about the Institute is it's, it's, it's very much like a pressure cooker and it's very demanding. There's a intensive, uh, regimen of class, class work, a lot of homework and things like that. But there is, um, 
also agreed to give a deal of cooperation. And so students were all kind of in it together. And the way the university is organized is they really try to teach people how to think and how to solve problems rather than to regurgitate materials. So a lot of the tests were open book tests that you would take on your own at home. You were on, it was, there was a very formal honor system. So if it was a two hour test, you took it for two hours and then you were done, but you would do it at home and it was open book, which basically meant that memorizing wasn't going to help you. Understanding was the only way that it would help you. And so as a freshman, I think I was, uh, um, seduced by the idea that physics was going to uh, be the gateway to understanding the secrets of the universe. And so I was uh, uh, drawn towards studying physics. And I think what I found over many years and, you know, starting to learn about myself and getting involved in social dynamics uh, uh, that happens in university, that um, the questions that I was most interested in were not questions that were actually being covered by uh, the physics curriculum. And when I did find classes in uh, consciousness and the like uh, from the biology department, they were usually run by people who were uh, hardcore uh, materialists who had the belief that consciousness was something that was derivative from the function of matter. Mm -hmm. And so that worldview didn't set well with me. And at the same time, in parallel in my, uh, 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 you know, out of school activities, I was reading more about mystical philosophy and magical philosophy and the likes, and I had this very different worldview that seemed to be speaking to me as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, ultimately, my I had lots of ups and downs. I had periods where I took leaves. I had periods where I did well and periods where I didn't do so well. And at the end, it was almost a, like a force of will for me to just kind of uh, hunker down and finally finish my degree just so I could get out of that place. I because see. because it was, you know, like I said, it was, I wasn't finding myself uh, caught by anything in the physics curriculum or the math mathematics curriculum or even the engineering curriculum. I was, I was kind of feeling like uh, a little bit stuck and needed something different. So ultimately my graduation was a way to kind of get out of that. And I ended up going to graduate school at UC Santa Cruz more by inertia, uh, partly because uh, Santa Cruz is sort of a second tier school would look at schools like Caltech and they would look at the people who had mixed careers because they would be the people who wouldn't be going to a Harvard or an MIT and they'd recruit those people because, uh, uh, you know, 50, 50, they might get someone who turned out to be a pretty uh, strong performer. Right. So, um, I was recruited in one sense on that basis, but I ended up being the uh, 50% that ultimately, uh, didn't last in their uh, degree program. So I spent a couple of years in Santa Cruz studying physics, but that was just a transition really, because I, you know, my heart wasn't in it. I kept thinking that if I found another subject piece, uh, you know, topic that that would ignite passion, but it, that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. then, and so ultimately out of that, uh, I started to seek for connection with, uh, something more spiritual and ultimately found and connected with Taiyu Meditation Center in Sonoma County as a vehicle for pursuing the questions that were most interesting to me. Okay. Where did you come from when you went to Caltech? You came from uh, what part of the country? Where were you? Well, I, I came from Colorado. Um, uh, my 
family and my, my father was uh, an exploration geologist for mobile oil. And uh, during his career, it was a time when there were a lot of regional offices. So we, I was born in Oklahoma City and we moved into to Durango, Colorado, to Casper, Wyoming, to uh, Calgary, Alberta, to Dallas, Texas. And then the longest run I had before college was uh, outside of Denver, Colorado for about seven years. Wow. That's an interesting trajectory you described. And um, down there at Caltech, did you live on campus or did you live off campus? I lived on campus. And um, at the time, it's still somewhat like this, although I think it's been uh, uh, changed a little bit. But at the time I was there, there were seven primary student houses on campus. And each house was uh, something of a, a combination of a dormitory and a fraternity. I say that because there was a rush process or what we called rotation and students would have dinners in each of the houses and uh, each night for a week. And, um, and then the student houses would uh, go through a picking process to pick the freshmen. So each freshman would choose four houses that they wanted to be a member of, and each house would then stack rank the people that they wanted in their house. Mm -hmm. And typically the people at the top of the list and the bottom of the list were the people that each house got. Uh, and the um, net result of that was that people would migrate into dormitories or student houses that had some sort of affinity to their personalities. And so these houses had long-standing traditions, decades-old traditions and personalities that uh, really put a stamp or a character on the, um, uh, the life of the student. Is, it, is that how it was for you, that you found yourself in, with a group of students that you felt some sort of natural affinity with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was in a, a house called Dabney House, and... At the time, it had the reputation of being the drug house. Uh, uh, it had other. It had other. It was also known as the house of gentlemen. Uh, it was. Uh, it had um, a reputation for having some of the more unusual, sort of extreme, quote unquote, hippie types. Uh, uh, this was in uh, uh, yeah, early 79, 80, 81. So, um, and. So yes, I, I was very had a strong affinity. Uh, there were a lot of people who thought very differently. There were very brilliant people who were, uh, you know, in many cases what we called flamed out, or you know, had uh, left the university but would hang around socially. And and so there was quite a lot of different personalities, uh, but all very smart people. And so what was interesting for me in that environment was that I felt like I was home with a bunch of people that were similar to me or like me. They weren't identical, but they were they were kind of of a family. And that was the first time in my life I had such a strong social experience like that. That sounds pretty nice, actually. Yeah, it, it, it was nice, and but it was superimposed over this very difficult academic environment. So have, have any of those... Uh, friends that you made at Caltech remained your uh, friends uh, up till today or any? Yeah, there's, uh, there's quite a number of them that I'm still connected with. That's nice. uh, you know, these days the connections are uh, modulated by distance and uh, convenience, but, you know, uh, tools like Facebook are ways to kind of 
keep in touch with uh, a, a good catchment of that group. Have any of them uh, embraced uh, the mystical positivist? Um, I think some may have uh, listened to some of the shows. Uh, I don't think any of them, uh, uh, any of my friends quite had as strong a uh, bent in the mystical direction as I um, have. I've had, I've had some friends out of that who sort of walk that path in parallel at times, but uh, not in the particular way or form that I, that I have. Okay. Uh, well, great. That, that's a, a nice little bit, bit of a background from my point of view to hear all that, Stuart. I, I, I feel I can relate to it. Did you ever, did you ever get over to Pomona college from Caltech by any chance? No, I, I didn't. I, I mean, I, I didn't while I was there, but I was, um, um, I think, isn't Harvey Mudd part of that complex? Yeah. yeah. So Harvey Mudd was one of the schools that uh, um, I might have gone to. And, okay. and so yeah, cause I had applied there and uh, uh, visited the campus. Um, and so uh, I was kind of aware of, of the Pomona colleges as, as um, being sort of probably similar uh, uh, enclaves of the, of the sort I, I was describing. Well, um, I just share this little thing. I did get to Caltech one evening for a party at Caltech from Pomona College. I was uh, there about, I was in, there in 66, 65 and 66. And uh, they served a punch. The Caltech kids had put together a punch made from, I think it's just called grain alcohol, 100% alcohol <laughs> mixed in with some sort of nice fruity thing. And uh, we just got completely drunk. Everybody did. It was <laughs> anyway. It, it was a, it's a memorable experience. Now uh, let me let me jump over to you, Rob. Okay. Okay. So you have a very interesting little uh, Vita, short Vita there. First of all, you're a, a doctor. You went all the way through and got your doctorate. Where, where do you a little bit about your doctorate, if you don't mind. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I didn't, uh, uh, I mean, I started college immediately after high school, and I was dealing with coming out as gay in the early 70s. So uh, my personal um, trajectory was strongly affected by that. So I basically dropped out and, and went back here and there. And it wasn't until I was in my late, mid to late, I guess mid-30s, that I went back and finished my undergraduate degree at UC Berkeley. And I was uh, kind of uh, inclined to, uh, uh, I wasn't sure what I was doing with it, but I knew I wanted to complete the undergraduate degree. Uh, so, and what was so, the degree in, the undergrad degree? Anthropology. Okay. So I ended up uh, connecting with a, a woman who later became my um, a PhD dissertation um, chair, chairwoman. And she was one of the very early, even uh, has claimed to being uh, among the first two people in the field of anthropological archeology span to bring a feminist perspective into into the field and 
so I was in my late thirties. This would as this by the time I was uh, getting ready to graduate in '92, I was 39. And um, in the year or two before that, I'd connected with her. I did an undergraduate honors thesis with her. And I realized that I wanted to continue doing uh, archaeology. So, so I did. And, and they, don't, they don't admit many of their own uh, undergraduates to the graduate program. But, um, but in my case, they, they made an exception. And I was very grateful because that, beginning with my dissertation chair, a, a um, woman named Meg Conkey, um, the, the department was in the process of becoming the preeminent uh, feminist department in the world, probably, it, might, it would be fair to say. And, and I wanted to do uh, research on uh, gender and sexuality in an archaeological in archaeological contexts so um so it worked out very well in terms of um both my research interests and personalities because as as you may know um graduate advisors and graduate students can often have a uh how can, how can I put a problematic relationship uh because many, in many cases, uh, graduate advisors who've never really learned how to be a, <clears throat> a graduate advisor end up trying to replicate their own um, interests in their students. But, uh, but Meg was, a, was wonderfully eclectic and, and uh, um, open to me doing something different than had been done before. So I ended up doing a, a dissertation on um, sex and gender variation in grave contexts in uh, the last period of hunter-gatherer um, economy in southern Scandinavia. And well, what are, to what day? Denmark, Denmark and southern Denmark and southern uh, uh, Sweden, and we're talking like five to seven thousand years ago. And I did that, I chose that place because I could do, there were enough burials that I could use statistical analyses to look at um, what what uh, was going on there and, and discovered that in fact, in, in later European prehistory, we see a very, we see very gendered graves in many cases, but in these, this hunter, this final hunter gatherer phase, actually, there's virtually no differentiation between male and female uh, skeletal treatments. Mm. So um, in terms of grave goods and, and whatnot. So um, I did that, but probably more of a contribution, certainly a more original contribution was that with a fellow grad student, I put together a, a, a symposium in 1998 at the Society for American Archaeology meetings um, called um, Archaeologies of Sexuality. And we invited all kinds of research, senior researchers. We were still just grad students, but we invited all these senior researchers to um, present papers uh, considering sexuality as an object of knowledge in, the, in their various archaeological contexts. 
and it proved to be a very hot topic. We were recruited by various publishers, so a book came of that, was published by Rutledge in 2000. And, um, and then I finished and I taught for a year after, at, after I concluded my uh, um, grad, graduate work at Berkeley, but, um, but um, I was actually happy to put down, I sort of asked the universe, do you want me to continue with this or do you want me to do something else? And the answer was to do a, create a spiritual bookstore based on our meditation or, or, or as an embodiment of our uh, meditative uh, practice and philosophy. And so, in fact, just the other day, we celebrated our 18th anniversary for that store. And that's uh, Many Rivers? That's Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, yeah, yeah. California. So so, um, so it was um, something that I was very grateful to do. You know, I, while I, I really loved archaeology, I was not, I, I had mixed feelings about being a professor because I really hated doing lecture classes, just really despised that. I loved doing uh, seminars, upper uh, you know, uh, upper division seminars, where I would, in, I had this specific goal to encourage people to learn to cultivate opinions and then share them in a way that honored the opinions of those who disagreed with them. That was a that was a huge uh, uh, that that was my main focus, frankly, <laughs> when I was leading these. Other, other than you know the topical areas, which I you know I would choose because I was interested in them. Sure. But, but uh, that was um, then a contrast with um, serving customers who, in many cases, they'll come into a spiritual bookstore and and they want advice about some life problem. Or that life advice in the sense of what book or or practice or whatever will will be relevant to me, and it was a very different thing than undergrad working with undergraduate students, most of whom, not all, but most of whom were just interested in the grade. Yeah, quite uh, frankly. Well, it sounds like your description of of how you like the graduate uh, seminars. Uh, is uh, a really good fit with the uh, programs that you do with the mystical positivist. Oh, that is that is exactly true. And you know, I came upon that when I was doing this archaeologies of sexuality project because, you know, I and my uh, my good pal um, uh, Barbara Voss um, ended up having these fabulously creative conversations with uh, these senior colleagues of ours at the time. Who, um, who we were asking to um, think in a different way about their, you know, their research, their particular uh, topical and area research, and and it was just such a tremendous revelation to me how wonderful it could be to have conversations um, with people who are really engaged in doing something interesting with their lives. Oh yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me, this is just, uh, I had never had one thought ever that that anthropology and archaeology would sort of be like anthropology slash archaeology or vice versa. Ah. Uh, would you just uh, 
share a few <clears throat> thoughts or to tell, tell me how that works in the world because it's a slightly novel to me. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's, it, it's, it varies with geography, which is to say that in particularly American um, academic uh, contexts, anthropology and archaeology sort of grew up together because anthropology was first configured as a way to study the other, you know, not us. Okay. Uh, in the night, late, you know, second half of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. And in North America, archaeology was about, at the time at least, not us. There wasn't something called what we call now historical archaeology, mm. um, which looks at basically stuff from the last three or four hundred years in North America um, or in other contexts, too, of course. But but in North America, it was it was about, you know, Native Americans archaeology. And so it fit nicely within the um, the overall context of this anthropological project which at the time also included a lot of what, what people thought of it at the time as rescue anthropology. In what, or that's one term for it, there are others, but. What does that mean, a rescue anthropology? Well, well so, so native California, for example, in California here, native Californian cultures were, were uh, being lost and obliterated by um, the dominant um, Anglo-American culture coming in, creating different economic regimes. I mean, of course, Native Californians were, were massacred and treated so horribly, especially in the late 19th century, but that was that continued to be true into the 20th century. And so um, it was uh, the work of the fellow who founded the department at UC Berkeley that I got my three degrees in, um, Alfred Krober, and he became one of one of the prominent people to. Um, he 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 founded the department. He was a student of a guy named Franz Boas, who had who had um, BOAS. Yeah, uh, BOAZ. Uh, sure. So anyway, um, so he he was you know his his classic handbook of California Indians is still, you know, uh, uh, it's actually used by Native Californian groups often. Wow. Wow. Um, you actually study with Krober directly? No, no, he was he was deceased by the time. I, however, his daughter um, Ursula K. Le Guin, Ursula Krober Le Guin, was someone that I had a chance to meet several times. Who's who's who I could still consider my favorite author. Period, both in uh, uh, prose and poetry, really. And uh, so, so there's uh, I've uh, um, had a deep appreciation for the for the Krober family. Shall we say? Well, did did you two ever have uh, her on your program, Ursula Le Guin? No, I wish. I wish, um, but that, <laughs> but that, but that never happened. Okay. Well, um, it would it would have been interesting though. Is she still alive? No, she died a couple of years ago. Yeah, too bad. Well, okay. Th this is uh, the archaeology anthropology interface is a very interesting uh, area, and and. Um, this perspective as the uh, we're looking at them as the other uh, both archaeologically and anthropology anthropologically so I, I i gather from the way just the way you said that that you are 
um, interested in maybe another way of uh, relating to to this this broad. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll just say that the reason I did my own research in Scandinavia with hunter gatherers, as opposed to with Native Native American hunter gatherers, is because of the fraught relationship in many cases between archaeologists historically. I mean archaeologists and native native groups, because um, although in, you know, the department that I was in, there was, you know, uh, it, it was a hugely important focus to remedy this um, lack of respect that that had prevailed for such a long period of time in the discipline. Yeah. But, um, and in fact, you know, one of my fellow grad students was a, um, a, a Pomo Indian from uh, Son Sonoma County, where we live. Mm -hmm. I'm still, you know, um, in in occasional contact with him, mm -hmm. um, and you know there are others others as well. So, so so I had to go to be able to to feel good about doing research about hunter gather sex and gender variation among hunter gatherers. I had to go to this. Um, other context where there was a lot of uh, data and it wasn't controversial to use that data to do statistical analyses. In the in my case, I, I would have had to, my dissertation probably would have taken a lot longer because I would have had to establish a relationship with a, with whatever native groups. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, there might've been resistance to this or because who am I, this, this uh, white guy, you know, coming right. in and, 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 and so there are people who have done a good job. A lot of my colleagues have done a really good job of establishing relationships of trust and respect. Yeah. And, and that is on, that is an ongoing project in the discipline for sure. So I, th I think I read something on your website that's indicated that you have an ongoing relationship with, uh, I guess, UC Berkeley or some some mm -hmm. schools. Is that is that the case? Yeah, although frankly, I've let the um, the uh, uh, the scholarship thing go on that. I still do. In fact, I was I was going to chair a uh, uh, a symposium at uh, a, a uh, archaeological conference at Stanford last year in 2019. Uh, or no, excuse me, earlier this year in 2020. Um, and then the pandemic happened. It was going to be in May. So so I do I do occasionally still, I keep my uh, uh, my big toe in at least yeah. uh, to that pond. But I would say it's, um, I'm now as a uh, senior scholar, shall we say, in especially in in the sexuality and and sex and gender area of uh, archaeological research how did you two Stuart and rob how did you two get to connect and when we met we met through through um the through taiyu meditation center so i had met the founder of taiyu robert daniel ennis in 1977 and i quickly moved in Within what was it a month after after I met him, moved into this flat in San Francisco at the time, uh, 
where a bunch of other students were were living with him. And then um, uh, shortly thereafter, moved up to Sonoma County, and and Stewart saw an ad in in a uh, in Common Ground, which was a I remember that sure. yeah yeah a free publication where where different uh, groups would uh, would advertise, and so he came up to a uh, workshop, a Halloween workshop that uh, where we had a guest speaker and Robert was a huge fan of this gets into the whole conversation thing again. Robert was a huge fan of having conversation with different teachers from different traditions. Mm. And so he and so we hosted lots of events like that and Stuart came to one of those. Mm -hmm. So and then you guys connected at that event somehow it sounds like Yeah, yeah over the next year I yeah, I, well, I, I, yeah, the event was a, um, it was a hosted workshop with a, a, a speaker, you know, a, a Wiccan and, uh, and uh, in celebration of Samhain. But what caught me about uh, uh, Taiyu Meditation Center at the time was that uh, when we sat, we're sitting in the living room and, and, going through and kind of introducing ourselves, Robert, who wasn't the focus of the weekend workshop, uh, described himself as a uh, fourth way teacher. Hmm. And that uh, galvanized my attention because um, at that time I had read, um, I guess I'd read uh, uh, Meetings of the Remarkable Men and uh, sort of tried to read parts of Ostensky's The Fourth Way and had this uh, sense of a vitality in that tradition and an intellectual interest in that tradition, uh, but also this kind of frustration that the references to a school, you know, like, well, where do you find a school? What's that mean? Right. And even, even when I was at Caltech, uh, uh, the friend who had uh, uh, recommended I read Meetings of the Remarkable Men, he and I attended a, uh, a, a meeting of a group, uh, which today I would describe as a fourth way cult, uh, the, the group up in uh, near Sacramento uh, that, uh, that uh, was sort of formed around a, a particular uh, uh, person claiming to be a teacher in the tradition. But they, we we went to their open meeting and and I, nothing connected with me there. You know, it yeah, seemed yeah. it seemed like people were kind of filled with themselves. Yeah. Um, but I still had this sense of uh, interest in the fourth way. So when Robert uh, signaled an affiliation with that tradition, I was like very um, uh, that got my attention. So despite the Sam Hain. Uh, 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 talks and rituals and practices of the weekend. I was really more interested in the conversation I had with Robert at that weekend. And that was in uh, like October 27th, 1985. Uh, um, I think before we get into the Teyu Meditation and Meditation Center, which I'm, I'm interested to learn about, uh, I just wanted to go back again to uh, archaeology. Rob, did uh, you, you were focused on questions of sexuality in that five to seven thousand year old uh, population I guess as a specific kind of focus mm -hmm. 
But did you also, since you were involved in archaeology, did you sort of poke around or uh, read in other areas of, of the past, uh, ancient past, the archaeological record, so to speak, Egypt, the Middle East, uh, Sumeria, et cetera, et cetera. Did, did any of that interest you? Sure. Um, I will say that the, that the um, uh, when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, another of the professors there uh, was, uh, uh, had a, an aerial focus on agriculture in, uh, in the Pacific Islands. And he offered a class in prehistoric farming. And in that sort of class, it was, um, you had to start with what happened before the farming. And so that transition from the hunter-gatherer economy to the um, farming economies, ultimately the farming and herding economies that succeeded hunter-gatherers, um, was and still remains to me. I just I just finished a book, reading a book last night uh, that addresses these areas, and there's been a lot of really interesting research continuing in that area, and I'm. Um, I'm fascinated for a number of reasons uh, because it seems to me that, well, there's been a lot of uh, back and forth in archaeology as to the development of social hierarchies. So we live in a quite uh, developed social, social hierarchical society. And in many, if not most, hunter-gatherer societies, um, you don't see the kind of hierarchies or they don't manifest in the way that um, subsequently came to be uh, the case. So coming to understand the processes involved with the development of hierarchy, the maintenance of hierarchy, and, re and the realization that it's not just a, um, a, a single path from... Um, from a non-hierarchical society to ultra-hierarchical societies, that that different groups have different choices that can be made about this, um, is is an ongoing interest to me. You know, there's a there's a guy who just uh, another uh, uh, archaeologist or anthropologist really who just died named David Graeber. His his best known book is called Debt, D E B T Debt: The First Five Thousand Years. And he's been a wonderful uh, source of inspiration for a lot of folks um, in looking at how um, these hierarchical processes um, both um, came into being and fluctuate, can fluctuate over time. He was, uh, he was also one of the folks in the, um, uh, Occupy. the Occupy movement in New York. And uh, he lost his position at Yale apparently because of that, and ended up going ended up going to uh, to Britain, et cetera. So that it's an ongoing uh, area of interest to me, and um, finding finding how shall I put it, finding alternatives in the archaeological past to demonstrate that we don't have to do things the way we're doing now, whether it's with regard to sex and gender, with, whether it's, whether it's re, with regard to 
social hierarchical um, uh, elites, etc., um, that remains uh, an enduring interest. Have you? I'm guessing you've run across the work of Schwaller to Lubitsch. Does that? Uh, no, the name. Uh, I, I mean, I, the name sounds familiar, but I'm. But I re- refresh my memory. Well, I think he would be considered um, an independent Egyptologist, and I don't think the uh, the fraternity of scholastic mm-hmm. Egyptologists have much respect for him. But he's mm-hmm. and he and his wife spent pretty much, I think, their adult lives studying ancient Egypt. And there's a huge book called The Temple of Man. It's quite fascinating. Both, uh, mm-hmm. both of them are, they have some very interesting views. I just thought I'd run it by you and see if you looked at it. I have not. I, I have not. I will admit that that Egypt in particular has not been. Stuart, Stuart um, uh, as a child, uh, at least he, he asserts, and I have no reason to disbelieve him, uh, as a child, what? How old would you have been? As a teenager. Yeah. So, so he actually taught himself to read hieroglyphics. So, so he's he's the one who might have found himself reading this person uh, more than I. You know that? Do you know Schwaller de Lubitsch? Do you know that name? No, I don't. I'm actually uh, be interested in uh, the reference. So it's, okay. it's the the yeah. Temple of Man. Huh? Yeah, it's a huge. It's a big, huge tome. Uh, I think his wife wrote a book. Um, it's just a little paperback. Uh, Herbach, I think it's called H E R B A K. Hmm. Herbach, and it, it's a kind of uh, imagined uh, story of a uh, young man's initiation uh, into the, the mysteries of Egyptian knowledge. You know, hmm. fascinating little book. Hmm. Anyway. Um, how about something like Gobeki Tepley, Rob? Uh, oh, I am I am utterly fascinated, uh, and have been reading a lot about. Um, it's not lost on me that that the uh, the the principal investigator um, for many years has the same last name as I do, but that 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 in itself is not not a reason to be uh, interested in. Um, it's it's really the uh, the demonstration that hunter gatherer groups could come together to engage in uh, socially in, in projects requiring huge um, amounts of of collective effort, um, which is uh, you know it sets on its head the previous understanding that you had to have um, the growth of elites thanks to the accumulation of surpluses, farming surpluses. Um, it, it really uh, underscores. In fact, I was just um, reading an art, reading one of the latest articles on that, on Gobekli Tepe, which has some fabulous photos in it um, of, of some of the uh, aspects of the site, um, which makes the assertion that um, that in fact it was an an arena um, where we have lots of evidence for communal feasting, and that would have been one of the probably one of the pr- ritual feasting would have been probably one of the primary reasons 
uh, raison d'etre for for the existence of of this site. Not unlike my, uh, I was mentioning my uh, dissertation chair, Meg Conkey. So her um, early research, her PhD research, was about the aggregation sites among the cave, the cave painting Magdalenian populations of uh, southwest France and uh, northern Spain, mm. uh, which would have been, you know, uh, uh, 15,000 or 10 to 15,000 years earlier. But but this aspect of people coming together, even hunter gatherers who can't uh, live in one place all the time, the importance of, of people coming together communally to do things together um, and engage socially is is something that seem that Gobek Lateply is is a, is a wonderful example of. That's some of the latest research. Stuart, um, what aspects of Rob, Robert's interest do you share? Well, I, I, I certainly was have been interested in his uh, his primary research on the uh, distribution and the methods of determining gender roles in the uh, in in the past you know it's 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 fascinating to me that you know the the frontier of archaeological knowledge is how much can you actually extract meaning from a material record and so his research in terms of looking at uh 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 sexed bones either through osteographic or osteological methods or through dna to look at a distribution of male and female, uh, biological male and female, and then correlate that with grave goods, I thought was very interesting. And I, so I, I was certainly very much- the, uh, By the way, the DNA didn't exist when yeah, I was no. doing my research. Yeah, that's, that's, that's available now, which is a wonderful, yeah. and w- wonderfully important. But, um, you know, I, I think, uh, and then some of the uh, sources that he mentioned about the, some of the, understandings of the dynamics of power structures in societies i i find interesting um uh, the work of david graber i find very interesting in terms of kind of turning on its head unexamined assumptions i've had about the nature of money the nature of debt the nature of uh uh sharing and community and and uh it's given me occasion to reimagine what could be possible with people as opposed to accepting the forms and the uh, assumptions that I grew up with as being the only way things could be. Uh, By by the way, I'll just add that um, uh, Stuart's interest in my research was sufficient that uh, sometimes at parties, he would jump in and explain my research before I would. (laughs) And and so, uh, uh, but then he likes to talk. So (laughs) he was very good at it. It's the point I'm making. Are either of you readers of uh, Peter Kingsley? You know, that's re- funny. It's so funny that you mention it because uh, um, I've been meaning to read him for years. His big book, Reality, um, just went out of print from the original publisher and now has been reprinted by his new press, Catafalk Press. Kingsley has his own press now. Mm. And so I was just in the bookstore uh, uh, getting a copy um, for the bookstore of that of the of the new edition, 
I have to say it's the production values aren't quite as good as the previous publisher, but it's there and yeah. it's still, and it's on my list of, of, of things. Yeah. things we have to a, read. a mutual friend was just recommending him to us. Okay. Well, this is a general question that um, I would just put to both of you, but I think it's uh, maybe more cogent for you, Rob. And that is my uh, understanding is that traditional cultures, old ancient cultures, indigenous cultures, generally speaking, are oriented towards um, what we would call a spiritual view of of life, that there are uh, animate forces greater than ourselves that we must be aligned with or pay careful attention Mm -hmm. to. And... um, so in that respect, they are radically different from, let's say, contemporary life here in the uh, educated West, the materialist scientific sort of paradigm that, that we've had. What do you, what's your, did you, does that seem like a reasonable thing to assume that, uh, that, that traditional cultures and ancient cultures are, let's just say God-centered, I mean, to make, to put it, the simplest i i wouldn't put it quite quite that way what i would say is is that absolutely the materialist um perspective that has arisen in the last 500 years in the west is unique and that and and that um i don't know of any um other culture either uh, one's extant still extant or uh, that we know that we can learn about from the past that would share all the features of the materialist view that we that that we do and that being said there's incredible amounts of variation um, in the way that it's hard i mean our words have certain valences so i could say that they're uh like like i resist the, the word God, because that has a bunch of valences in our uh, context, not least the dichotomy of atheism versus um, religion uh, of any particular stripe. And, and also divinity uh, versus secular. Those words lead us in certain directions that actually occlude our view of what what people in the past and non-western people how they may view what's going on i mean a good example is is actually uh, shinto in japan contemporary shinto in japan how people in japan configure what they're doing when they uh, go and just bow in front of a temple in tokyo Shinto Temple in Tokyo doesn't really map onto um, any of the materialist thing, and and, th- and this is in the middle of a on a highly materialist, economically successful uh, culture, right? They've adopted, you know, um, in many ways, the uh, the Western materialist view, hook, line, and sinker, and yet there's this other stuff going on. 
So I, I want to uh, respond to that question as well, because I, I have a, I guess, a intuition about, uh, you know, the, the first, first, like to, to Rob's point, uh, to use a word like God centered uh, uh, is, is problematic only because to the people at, uh, uh, in a different time and place, what we would, what as a Westerner we mean by God centered uh, may not map as Rob's example about Shinto. Um, a way I, to use more neutral language, um, I might use a term like uh, wholeness centered and wholeness centered means that the, the mind, the heart and the body are sort of equally participating in the relationship to one's life. Um, I am struck very strongly by um, Gurdjieff's own diagnosis uh, in the chapter called Religion in uh, All and Everything, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, when, when he speaks about the loss of the ability for modern man to think allegorically. Uh, there's a very, and, and he's very precise about what that means. What he means is that the feeling center no longer participates in the process of mentation, but the mentation is now one centered. And so when we look at the period over which he's describing, and uh, that corresponds with this age of materialism, which I might more accurately call an age of literalism, where our imaginative forces and our feeling sense are not participating in the primary vehicles or the primary ways in which we process the experiences of our life. And so consequently, I think then our relationship to the quote unquote divine suffers from that. So whereas um, uh, peoples in the past who had a more balanced way of relating to their lives would have this active mythology where they didn't have to take the mythology as literal. It didn't matter whether the gods were real or not. What was what mattered was that they had a relationship to them in some form or another. And we don't even have to parse it in the ways that we would parse it from a literal materialistic point of view. We have a friend, um, uh, a guy named Ken McLeod, who's a Tibetan teacher, who was at one time a translator for Kalu Rinpoche in the Kagyu tradition. And he tells this very funny story about how he was translating uh, for uh, Kalu Rinpoche at one point, and someone asks him this question, which is uh, a Westerner asking this question, which is, you know, are the gods that we visualize in the uh, deity practice real? And it took them literally a half hour to translate the question because the question didn't even make sense in the Tibetan language or, or to Kala Rinpoche. Ultimately, uh, the answer, once, once Kala Rinpoche understood what this person was actually asking, the answer was uh, along the lines that it's real because it has an effect on us, mm. you know? And, and so reality, reality is much more, uh, uh, pragmatic or utilitarian because the uh, the practice of the deity practice works it does something therefore the god is real mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, the ontological questions that we concern ourselves with in the, the western world are somewhat beside the point and so i think that that's a uh, important way of looking at this that uh, ancient cultures without even having to speak about the ultimate reality of uh of 
nature, they were just more active, more holistically active in their participation of their lives. And that doesn't mean everything was perfect or by any means, but it just means that uh, they were uh, running on three cylinders instead of one cylinder. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I, I can add to it, but if you have a question, go ahead. Well, I, mean, I, I just, um, no, when I put, when I use the word God, I felt distinctly uneasy because I know it's sort of freighted with a lot of unfortunate sort of um, associations. Um, but why don't you say what you were going to say, Rob, before we. Yeah. Move? Yeah. So, um, so one of the virtue, one of the things that, that first appealed to me about uh, the Taiyu practice as I um, uh, was first introduced to it is that it is entirely pragmatic in the sense that um, if something works for you, then it works for you. And, and you are the judge. There's, there's no external yardstick to measure um, what's going on in your life. So, so that means that ideas about divinity, ideas about God, ideas about how the universe works, etc., are always provisional, always provisional. And they gain meaning for us when, as Stuart was saying, when they resonate with the emotional capacity that we innately have, but also can develop greater sensitivity to with spiritual practice. And examples of that uh, would be, um, you know, we, 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 as you know, through the mystical positivist and, and just uh, life in general, we have connections with people doing all kinds of different spiritual practices from around the world. So a few years ago, um, there's a there's a woman here in, in Spasville who um, um, is uh, the inheritor of a of a of a line of um, Italian wise women who somehow, for some reason, and I'm not quite clear why, but she developed a relationship with, with a, um, an African tradition of um, divination. divination. And so we decided, oh, well, well let's, let's go and do, do the divination and see, and see what comes of it. Now, the divination is with, with these um, um, entities um, from that tradition, and they usually give you um, something to do through through the uh, uh, diviner, uh, you know, that you're speaking with and doing the doing the procedure with. So, I was given a set of um, uh, instructions to do to create a kind of altar in the earth and I decided to do it up in the Sierra Nevada mountains which are very personally it's a personally meaningful um, context for me and the diviner suggested that you know oh that that works so um, and and there were a number of things we had we had to we had to uh, bring to this to this um, engagement um, with this particular practice. 
Stuart and I uh, spent a weekend up in the Sierras and I was going to do it right at, at dusk when the, the procedure, but when we got up there earlier in the day, we realized, oh, we forgot some things like birdseed. So we went to a local market, you know, it was like a Safeway or something and large, large, uh, large grocery market. And we walk in the door and this employee stands there and says, did you remember the birdseed? Wow. And then she mentioned something else, another item that was on our list of things to offer to these entities. And we're looking at each other like, okay, this is, this is, this is to me, um, you know, a materialistly inclined person would say, wow, pretty remarkable coincidence, but you know what? It was more than that because when, when we later engaged with her, you know, we went and got our supplies and, and whatnot and she checked us out and, and there was no indication that she had any connection to um, our purpose and what we were up to, or, or certainly I'd never been in the store before. It, you know, it was, it was just, um, it was um, not consistent with any reasonable materialist interpretation. Wow, that's that is a ter- that's a really interesting story. And um, what would it, what would the mystical positivists say about that? Oh, Stuart, Stuart, since Stuart's the mystical let, positivist, I'll let him answer that. Let me just repeat this sentence: uh, that uh, the mystical positivist is dedicated to the application of reason. In the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. So, how That's does right. that work now in regard to this story that uh, Rob tells? Well, I think reason, reason in this case for me is uh, uh, holding a space of possibility and letting the fact be what it is and be cognizant of the remarkable coincidence and to be willing to feel the possibility surrounding that. So re- reason doesn't mean to me um, jumping to a conclusion. Uh, actually, reason to me means uh, resisting jumping to a conclusion or recognizing that any conclusion that's jumped to is just that, a conclusion that is uh, like taking a ruler to something. You know, If I take a ruler to a, a piece of wood, I get one piece of information, but it's not a uh, the whole story about the piece of wood. You know, it, it, And I take a... Uh, usually I take a ruler to a piece of wood because I want to do something with a piece of wood. I I don't want to sit back and say, oh, that's 12 inches. (laughs) And so in the same way, uh, with an event like this, we can hold the possibility. It's absolutely consistent with the worldview of the the divinatory space. And, you know, I I add that to, you know, uh, another point where Rob and I were doing another ritual associated with uh, uh, the divination that we had. And um, uh, it had to do with uh, um, a ritual within our uh, uh, a sanctuary of the absolute that we had constructed. And we had been told in the divination to do things in a particular way. And uh, literally uh, within... <laughs> A moment of doing the r- ritual, probably we, we discovered this the next morning, our well uh, d- uh, ceased working. 
and and the thing that we were doing had to do in within that tradition uh in part with uh invoking a dragon that was beneath the um uh the sanctuary and the dragon is associated with deep water and the uh, the resolution of all of this several with several weeks later was we had to end up drilling a 300 foot well in order to replace the 50 foot well that had failed but it literally was i, I would say well, the, what ha what had happened was the 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 previous shallower well collapsed. had collapsed yeah. the, the old steel uh, casing just collapsed but the night before uh we discovered you know and there's a latency because we have a big water tank so the night before we discovered that the well had failed uh, there was this culmination in this ritual that was very powerful and you know it's like, it's like and the well is very close to where we were working so again you know i don't have any conclusion about that i just it just it's like another fact that then sits out there as something in the space of possibility that's consistent with this particular worldview so so my so my summary of it is there's more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy horatio as as shakespeare put it mm -hmm. in other words you know we don't we don't we don't we think we know things we think that you know and and you know granted i uh, you know i have enormous respect for the um uh, for the processes and products of scientific um, exploration and, and knowledge, and the universe is a bigger place than just what we can get at yeah. with only those processes and only those uh, methods of exploration. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I guess there's a difference between science and scientism. Let's mm. put that yeah, way. absolutely. So um, it's uh, absolutely wonderful, this, this scientific attitude of wanting to verify things and to have things that are claimed to be verified by impartial investigation. On the other hand, people start to uh, get into kind of uh, a religious attitude about the materialism in a way and start creating absolute... Um, so I, I was going to ask you, where does uh, where does the mystic uh, does does the mystic? I think I know the answer to this. I think you spoke very well about the mystical positivist there in relation to the story that you told Rob about the. Uh, did you? Oh, I'll add something else to that story. Okay. Go ahead. So 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 later that evening when I'm doing the ritual, I'm out alone because it was just for me to do this, and and it's. Uh, the light is failing and I've created this essentially a kind of mandala on, in the in the soil of the high desert there at the edge of the uh, Sierra Nevadas and um, and it's a we're in a we were we had rented a, a house that was pretty lonely there were houses in the in, in in the vicinity but nothing nothing really close so it was quite quite a wild spot so i've done all these uh, all these ritual ac activities and the concluding activity was to um throw onto this mandala in the soil a liquid at the exact moment when it hit the ground 
suddenly a coyote started howling in the distance. There was no coyote earlier, coyote howling early. There was no coyote after it ceased howling after, you know, 30 seconds, no more coyote. It was that. Wow. Okay. So, um, there is more in heaven and earth. Oh, that, that's, uh, uh, yeah, that'll make a believer out of you, as they say. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, or, a provisional believer. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I think, I think what uh, the more precise thing to say is it, it, it allows us to stay open to these possibilities. Yeah. Because to be a believer is to then be committed to a certain, you know, uh, story. You know, so scientism is a uh, commitment to a story about the material nature of reality, just like uh, certain kinds of literalism and uh, religious concerns are commitments to stories. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to be so committed to stories. Uh, you know, it, it's, you know, the this the notion that what I like about science uh, and let's say positivism without the uh, logical aspect is that it is it it has a notion of falsifiability. It has a notion of empiricism, and so it says to me that our experiences matter, and we should be careful not to overinterpret our experiences, but hold an openness to our experiences, not deny them, but to uh, you know, hold a space of possibility and to be willing to look at them from different frames. And from from a logical world, we can look at everything we've said and it's an interesting set of coincidences. And isn't the mind clever that it makes these connections and it uh, filters out all the connections that don't uh, uh, mean anything. From a mystical or from a, uh, you know, magical point of view, uh, it's also perfectly consistent with these entities, the Wedeme, which are like, earth elementals in the Nigerian tradition, uh, you know, uh, having a conversation with us and that conversation leaking out through the uh, cracks in uh, the uh, phenomenal world. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's well said. I'm, I'm still in the back of my mind holding on to your uh, Shinto example, Rob. Mm -hmm. And uh, I haven't really studied Shintoism at all, except I do have, the impression that uh, the Shinto religion honors uh, spirits in nature, that this is somehow a kind of central. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, but it doesn't have to be nature. Uh, So um, my understanding at least, and I am, believe me, I'm no expert. The reason I know as much as I do is because we have a dear friend who, who has been, uh, he was a former, uh, Korean Chogyezin monk. He's now a Quaker, but he's also very interested in in Shinto. Has spent time in Japan, etc. So, um, so I don't. I just want to <laughs> not claim to have any particular knowledge about it. But my understanding is that that um, what we would call what, as an archaeologist, I would call material culture. That is um, artifacts created by by human um, activity um, also have spirit in them yeah there is no there is no aspect of our experience that doesn't have that that feature but to a, it but a kami the, the the name in the Shinto tradition is kami 
so it's got sort of like uh, 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 the, the kami, there's, there could be a kami for a village, there could be kami for a tree, there could be kami for the sunset. For and the wind. Yeah, and when, and when uh, a Westerners, you know, Westerners will tend to translate kami as spirit or God, you know, or deity. But if you press a Shinto, you know, who's, who's reasonably good with the English language, uh, you know, they'll, they'll say, eh, you know, a, a, a kami is that which uh, engenders awe. Hmm. Hmm. So any, anything like a, sun, a beautiful sunset has a kami because it's engendering a sense of awe in us. The uh, beautiful color of our uh, Japanese maple um, is, you know, provides in the afternoon sunlight a sense of awe. So there's a kami. So the, so the kami is more tied to this uh, higher emotional center activity than it is to uh, this Western idea of a spirit that is somehow separate and outside of myself. Okay, that's that's uh, that's a good sort of distinction to make. I just want to go back to this generalization that I was proposing between traditional and ancient cultures mm-hmm. and modern Western materialist culture. Mm-hmm. That uh, I find it uh, kind of congenial, or con- kind of maybe even. In- compelling but certainly an attitude that that uh touches my feeling center uh that traditional cultures in general and probably all ancient cultures would regard everything as alive in some sense mm-hmm. in comparison to um our dead uh meaningless universe that uh western science is to us, although that may be changing now, uh, given all the quantum stuff going on. But uh, for, for uh, you know, the last quite some time, we've we've had the uh, well-educated scientific people explaining to us that there's no way to impute uh, meaning or purpose to this dead universe. That is just, it's no need for that, and right. it, you know, that sort of thing. No, I, I mean, this is putting it out there in a big way. So I invite any any reflections on that. Yeah, I, I'll, I've thought a lot about that, having uh, been the inheritor of a hard scientific education. And um, you use the term scientism, and scientism is uh, uh, a good way of understanding that because our... Our, when our beliefs get ahead of our models, uh, we go from science to religion. And so there's a religion of materialism, which is committed, emotionally committed to this particular point of view that the universe is dead, you know, uh, and it will try to reconstruct or make room for uh, awe by appreciating the vastness of the universe and all this sort of thing. But the idea of higher purpose is, you know, uh, uh, completely put to the side, but there's no evidence for that. Um, there's no, there's no, there's nothing in the models that say 
much of anything about that. You know, we have these very limited models that allow us to do certain kinds of experiments and see certain kinds of consistencies. And we really don't even know if the models are local or if they uh, uh, work uh, throughout uh, the, the universe in the same way. We don't know that. We have indirect evidence that might suggest that, but we also have evidence you know, that doesn't suggest that. We have no idea, absolutely no idea uh, from a scientific modeling point of view what consciousness is. Philosophically, we can't even reduce consciousness. They're just such different categories that uh, to make the claim that you can, at, at least at, in this era, is seen to be pretty sketchy at this point. You know, now, now at least there's a re realization that consciousness is a different category and can't be reduced to a functional description. Uh, uh, because it, it just it doesn't it doesn't even make logical sense from just from a philosophical point of view. So yeah. to make these broad claims about the nature of reality or the nature of meaning uh, when you can't even explain uh, the most intimate experience that we have, which is the fact of our awareness, is it's just it's, it's absurdity. It's absolute absurdity, and it and it and it's it's about as interesting as. A literal interpretation of the Bible, you know, it's like it, it's it's like uh, a claim. It's a, it's an emotional commitment that's gotten ahead of itself and gotten ahead of uh, direct experience, and it's a fashion, and that fashion is changing. So, yeah. so I, you know, the fashion is changing. It's never going to, you know, completely, uh, you know, that 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 sort of uh, taint of propriety will probably always be there at some level, but uh, we're not going to suddenly find scientists uh, committed to a magical worldview, but at least there's a growing openness to different categories. And in fact, there's uh, these days, uh, even idealism, the, the philosophical perspective that, that uh, consciousness is the most fundamental uh, reality and that what we call the phenomenal realm is our dynamic patterns that emerge in consciousness. That's getting more traction. You know, yeah. uh, literally that's, that's getting, that's not being laughed out of the uh, Academy these days. There's actually quite serious people with long academic credentials who speak quite seriously and are looking at mathematical models of idealism that might give, allow you to give rise to understanding how you get a phenomenal universe from uh, uh, the raw fact of experience. Mm -hmm. Well, beautifully put, Stuart, beautifully put. Uh, I'm going to turn my light on here just a second. Uh, okay. Um, now, I think you guys are going to do, do interesting things with this little statement or thing. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you this, um, in your uh, hall of, of uh, in the mystical positivist hall of honored uh, historical people, um, where is the bust of Descartes, and how is how does <laughs> the uh, mystical positivists think about Descartes, and how do they, uh, let's say, unpack, of course, the uh, that seminal, uh, iconic statement, uh, cogito ergo sum. Well, I think it's just a mistake. <laughs> in fact, it's 
the problem is, or the difficulty is, um, what does it mean to think? You know, I don't know. I don't know exactly the meaning of the Latin cogito. You know, I, I have. I don't. I don't know exactly how that is would have been interpreted by uh, Descartes when he made the statement. Um, and even today in English, most English speakers or many English speakers might disagree what it means to think. I've come to the, the uh, uh, hypothesis, the provisional hypothesis, but I have a lot of evidence, it seems to me, for it, that if you define thinking as a voice in your head saying something, that it's, it's as if you're hearing someone else speaking to you, that's one phenomenon, but that there are other mental phenomena um, that we engage in that have very different consequences in the world. And then there's the relationship that we decide to believe or not believe between the voice in the head, the little voices in the head, and um, our relationship with people, our views of how things actually are, so, so for example, um, just because I have a voice um, telling me that I like ice cream doesn't mean I have to believe that I like ice cream. The, uh, when I was a kid and I had my tonsils out at age five, um, I was looking forward to having ice cream because that was supposedly the treat that would you know, after the, after the operation. But my mother told me that, that um, when she had, her, had had her tonsils out decades before, um, she had not liked the ice cream afterwards. So I refused the ice cream, even though my body wanted the ice cream. Because I listened to this thought in my head that was my mother saying, don't have ice cream after the um, after this uh, procedure or operation, right? It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was absurd. Yeah. Really. But that's, that's, you know, an admittedly trivial example of how the voices in our, how, how when we accord too much um, reality to the voices in our head, whatever they have, have to say, um, then we can get into trouble. One of my, one, you know, one of the things in my spiritual practice that I deeply appreciate is the um, notion that I don't have to believe any of the things the voices in my head have to say. Sometimes they're useful. Sometimes they're, they're um, anti-useful if you will. I'm going to ask you this question about that. Sure. The voices in your head, the way, you, you know, when I hear that, it's as though, yeah, there are voices in my head and they're talking to me. It's, uh, there's a sort of sense of being disconnected 
-hmm. What about the, if you, I don't know if I could put it this way, but the thing in my head that says I, I'm hearing. So that's a, that, I mean, that's a, uh, a function that we apply to um, the content in our consciousness so that, uh, and it's a way of identifying. So I identify um, is, is probably the operative uh, pronunciation there because we take the moment we take a, the content and say, this is me, we no longer recognize the separation and we act as though that that must be true. So if I uh, say I like ice cream, uh, then suddenly uh, I want ice cream. <laughs> you know, suddenly the uh, I, I start to get you know the uh, a, a body reaction and a sense of feeling, and and if I don't get ice cream, then there's a sense of loss. Where whereas um, being aware of the sensation and the attraction and the experience, but not necessarily believing it or making it, putting that stamp of eye on it, gives us some space to have choice. That's where that's where meditation practice uh, uh, can really help clarify our relationship to these phenomena that are happening uh, in in our heads. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's so it's not that it's wrong to have the eye like ice cream or I um, believe that was a mistake or I'm sorry I did that or whatever it happens to be. But, but when we have the experience of, of, of observing the arising manifestation and the passing of thoughts as something to observe, just like we observe the flight of the bird across the sky or um, the dripping of water in in the uh, um, rivulet, or whatever it happens to be, um, we have we have changed our relationship to that interior phenomenon to see it as absolutely no different than the rest of nature, fundamentally, and that's really important. That's a that's a very um, useful um, apprehension, if you will. Um, forgive me, my my mind wandered just a moment, just enough so that I think I lost a step. And I want you to repeat that for me. Basically, I mm -hmm. sort of responding to uh, I think the identification of I with something. Mm -hmm. Could you just kind of say that again for me so that I I really understand what you're saying? Sure. So so in meditate in and there are many forms of meditation practice, but but one of the principal reasons to engage in it is to be able to observe the arising, the manifestation, and the passing of thoughts within ourselves. Right. In just the same way as the bird flies, as we see the bird flying through the sky, the leaf falling from the tree in the fall, etc. These are these are phenomena that are inherently similar in that they do not 
last. That's the, one of the problems with the I identification is it insists that it is immutable or, or, or um, continues in time differently than the bird flying across the sky. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, it, and it, it certainly, I think, applies to the Descartes, I think, therefore I am. I think, mm-hmm. therefore I am, which, uh, and you said, I think it's a mistake, which uh, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I think it's a mistake. <laughs> Somebody said, a thought is not being. I forget who that was. Yeah, I would, I would um, uh, at least start to resuscitate that by reversing it to say, I am, therefore I think. Uh, but even that is a little too directional because, uh, but the sense of I am, I think uh, in my experience in my own uh, inquiry is a feeling that is more foundational it's it's like the feeling of awareness or it's kind of like a perspective and even that is uh problematic because of the word i so you know it's almost as though awareness is like amnes or there's a sense there is a sense of awareness and a sense of uh seeing and sometimes particularly with the cognitive function we can decompose that into the seer and the seen but the process, but prior to that decomposition, there's there's simply events arising and passing, as Rob said, and I think meditation practice in its various forms gives us more of a taste of that spaciousness, that that presence of awareness that doesn't immediately necessarily decompose itself into the uh, the seer and the scene, or the subject and the object. Those are relationships, those those defined kinds of relationships, and those are useful to negotiate a phenomenal uh, existence, but they're not ultimate. Yeah, I I find it very difficult to find a kind of a kind of quiet presence in myself where it's actually possible to have this witnessing mind that you've Mm -hmm. described. And I, I don't doubt that, that you have had that. You can have that experience, and others do. But I just, to me, that's that's a pretty, you know, that's that's a that's a wonderful. If you can get to that space, that's quite wonderful. I would think. Well, I mean, one of the nice things about fourth way practice um, is that there is, it's meant to be done in the midst of daily life. So, um, so to, in a sense, you're kind of interrogating this habit of saying, I think this, I see that, I don't like that, I, I, I. You're interrogating that, what that process is actually doing in the midst of daily life as you're doing it in the midst of daily life. So all the all the many ways in which we engage that. So um, so I, uh, although I suppose the purest form has the quality that you mentioned of silence, and that is some, certainly something 
that we want to be able to experience, it seems to me. It's also true that uh, as we deepen the practice of interrogating this habit of I, that we can be present to the thought being, you know, arising for us. And in a sense, it's held in that's what Stuart just calls a spatial, a space, a spaciousness of consciousness, such that it is like dropping a pebble into the pond. And it has reverberations and, uh, and effects, but we are holding our view of our experience as the entirety of the pond in this metaphor. And, and so it's okay for, for, for thoughts to arise because we know we're not only the thought. We are also this capacity to be present to the thought and the rest of the context that we're experiencing in our bodies and in our emotional responses. Yeah, I want to add that the other thing I appreciate about even like traditional fourth way practice is that uh, often the project of self-observation is framed in terms of starting with the the body or starting to become aware of sensation. And as a technique or a practice that can be helpful in pulling the energy out of identification. So when we find ourselves with a particularly strong cycle of thinking going on, because something may have some uh, emotional charge that remembering to bring our attention into our body and to feel the sensation in our body sort of gives us a level of objectivity because sensation is objective. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have polarity. It's either present or not, but it's not, it's not like good or bad. It's just, it's there. And we can kind of then, then see and pull energy out of the identification and get some space. And so I, I found that very helpful, uh, in, in practicing this, it, the, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, and this is again, to a point Rob, Rob, Rob made that the benefit of practicing in daily life is that we learn to recognize the openness or the spaciousness, the spacious mind, um, in an, in and among the phenomenal world that we're inhabiting. And I think sometimes we feel like, oh, I, uh, I have to have this pure space where there's no thought, uh, that I'm, I'm just completely empty and I'm up on a mountaintop in a monastery somewhere. And that, that is, that, that's Nirvana. And I don't, I don't think that's the case because, uh, you know, thoughts, uh, are going to, are as much a part of us as my fingernails are. You know, they, they grow, they, we cut them off, they grow some more. And 
they're just natural, but it's what we do with them that matters. And the thoughts can be there. And, and even we can be operating in fairly complicated engagements with uh, life and still have a taste of that spaciousness behind it all. And that to me, what that engenders, what that creates at an emotional level is a, uh, a sense of uh, a deeper sense of peace that, you know, the, the show is the show and it doesn't, it doesn't ultimately matter as long as I can maintain that connection with the spacious nature of being. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll just add to, to that, that, um, so an example of how this, um, how what we, we've just been talking about can manifest as being actually useful to other people is, is my experience of running our bookstore, our spiritual bookstore, and people coming in, as I mentioned before, who may have some feel that they have some particular need to be addressed and they, and they want to find um, a book or maybe a practice or something like that to, to help them address that. Well, um, the capacity to not identify with, I think you should do this, um, but rather to look at the person, to listen to what they're actually saying, which includes tone of voice, uh, physical gestures, um, as well as the words, um, the intellectual meaning of the words, means that, um, and this is, this, is, this is a practice for me, is to be able to respond creatively and um, you know, my teacher used to say that, um, we haven't gotten to this aspect yet, is that it is possible to speak without thinking first. It just comes out. And that's, and that's where the creative um, responses emerge from. Not that it's wrong to have a thought arise and then speak it. That's, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But but both possibilities exist and, and there can be real um, authenticity and utility to this capacity to not focus on your own, on I, 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 but actually be present to the other person and what they're expressing. Absolutely. And this is, this is one of the uh, possible fruits of uh, spiritual practice. I mean, a meditation, let's just say a, a properly conducted practice. I suppose there's people who get involved in things that are not necessarily, uh, I don't know, it's good to have someone who kind of knows that's the right way to practice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but that's a beautiful description, Rob, of how to be present to someone and listen to a person without being identified with your own functioning. And and, and your own habits of agendas to project onto others. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and that's something that I appreciate about our, our teacher, Robert Ennis, that was a strong, strong emphasis in terms of practice to the level where we have 
various meticulous exercises that we've practiced with uh, members of our community and workshops over the years that really take apart the relational aspect, you know, and, and put attention on the relational aspect and ultimately train people to be aware of and to hold a space of non-identification while someone else is uh, expressing and to receive it, to receive it uh, cleanly. And that, and that, well, I found that that absolutely is trainable and it takes, and it takes practice, but you have to be First, you have to aware that, be aware that there's something to train and then use practices to uh, help support that and to reinforce that ability. So I'm just having this impulse arise in me to want to ask you, or, or I'm, I'm feeling this, that uh, it must be for both of you, the running of the store, um, the bookstore and the tea shop, it must be very, very rewarding. Oh, I, uh, you know, I, I was touching on that earlier when I said that that my relationships uh, uh, with customers, while not always easy and smooth, tend to be so much more um, agreeable and and touch my heart as opposed to you know my previous job as a as as a university lecturer. Um, where so much of that relationship was was about the the agenda of the students to get a to get a good grade <laughs> to, either to manipulate me into giving them a good grade or to or or whatever but it was it was a, it was a very narrowly focused arena and so so you're absolutely right that that i um I really enjoy. I'm, I'm glad, you know, I, I said earlier that I that I asked the universe whether I was supposed to continue in academia or not. And if not, what what else? Well, I was led to this. I mean, I didn't know how to run a bookstore. You know, I didn't know. I mean, literally, I didn't know the, the first thing uh, about it. And um, and I was led and schooled. And then um, have had this this wonderful eighteen year run of um, of experiences that that have that I'm extremely grateful for. Well, and also I'm sure that, that something like that would be said about your uh, your program, the Mystical Positivist. I, I want to ask you, Stuart, because I see that we're getting up on two hours here. Which isn't necessarily my limit, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not really our limit either. I just uh, it says here that you're a tea master. <laughs> that that would be uh, a a perhaps an overstatement in the uh, in the. Uh, let's, let, let's just say that there are there are um, programs in China itself where extraordinarily rigorous programs, which include dietary restrictions, like not having things like onion and garlic, because that would interfere with um, the capacity to bring a clean palate to the tasting and grading of different teas. 
Stuart is definitely not a team master in that sense. Yeah. No, neither, but, neither of us is. Yeah. But in the, in the sense that we are empiricists, um, you know, we got into the, the T, I think somewhere for me in the, the 1990s, uh, probably the mid nineties, I, I think I went through about when I was, uh, working, uh, of uh, wanting to limit my coffee. And so I started to experiment with loose leaf tea. And this was the early days of the internet. And we, I, I found a, a, a local source that I could order teas from and started just experimenting and, and trying different teas. And uh, there was a point uh, after our teacher died in 1998, when uh, Rob and I were up the coast in Mendocino, where uh, I was just kind of so taken by the, the the small community, the seaside community, and you know, I was thinking, boy, it'd be nice just to you know be able to stay up here. What, what might be a way to do that? And uh, my fantasy was like, oh, we could have a tea shop. Well, fast forward a few years later, and uh, when we were contemplating opening a bookstore, a spiritual bookstore. Uh, with our uh, friend Jim, who had had some experience uh, running bookstores, um, uh, I had the idea that we could uh, sell tea as well. And I think at first, uh, Rob and uh, Jim were, you know, a little skeptical, but I think got kind of warmed to the idea. And uh, we went so far as to, in our lead up to opening the store, doing uh, some formal tastings with a, a gentleman named David Hoffman, who at the time ran one of the early importers of loose leaf tea called Silk Road Teas. And really, I think we all began to enjoy this world of, you know, these complicated different flavors that required a kind of intentionality in order to um, bring the brew to fruition. So unlike fine wines, which also have a, a vast spectrum of quality with tea, not only do you have the leaf, but you also have the quality of the water, which you're responsible for, the, the temperature of the water, which you're responsible for, and the, the, the duration of brewing, and the vessel in which you brew it, and the cups within which you uh, uh, pour it. And so there's all these variables that contribute that require a certain kind of involvement. And then the tea itself is not only healthy, but it provides a level of stimulation, but also a kind of a calming effect as well. So all these things seem to, you know, kind of come into play for us as a, a, a interesting adjunct to a spiritual bookstore. And so we, as we, you know, went through the early years of the store, we would do tea tastings and uh, learn about the teas, but also taste them and have our customers taste them. And, uh, those have become very fun events, at least pre-COVID, uh, where we could have people in the store and we could uh, you know, uh, try brew up seven different teas and give out little cups for people and talk about them and get people's impressions. Uh-huh. And so that's how we learned. You know, we learned kind of, uh, and we've read about tea and stuff like that. And we've read well, about- I mean, I had a I had a, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, I think it was 2014 to go to on a tea buying tour with a, with one of our vendors uh, to Taiwan. And, you know, I got to sp- spend a week looking at the different kinds of teas grown in Taiwan and meeting the tea growers, observing their methods. Um, um, 
And I, uh, you know, I, I, Stuart, Stuart was wanting to get off of coffee. I never, I was never a coffee drinker. I've had maybe 15 or 20 cups of coffee in my life because my body always rejected it. I didn't, I was not, ha not a happy coffee drinker. And I hadn't drunk tea either until we started the store, but, but I very quickly came to appreciate fine loose leaf teas and, and to realize that, you know, so, so archaeology is a, a community of people and um, there are various communities of people that we engage with in our life. Well, the tea world is the, the fine loose leaf tea world is a, is another community of people like-minded people um we've made great friends in that world and um and so it's been uh, it's been a wonderful set of experiences and um you know i i feel quite comfortable we, we just had a uh, a tea order from a, a former colleague of, of stewart's in uh in massachusetts and and it's agreeable that that he said, you know, he it was quite a large tea order. He does it like once a year, um, hundreds of dollars, and and he relies on on our judgment. Um, and I'm the one who, since I'm the tea buyer now, um, essentially, um, that means um, I have to trust my own sense of teas. And it's been educated over over an 18 year period now. And I and I um, I appreciate having that experience and and to be able to um, uh, say yeah this this is an outstanding tea I just sent one of the ones we just sent and we just we had just gotten in it's uh, uh, call, we call it honey water uh, oolong or honey water immortal oolong and it was fabulous this year just such a wonderful experience. I was going to ask you, I, I suppose that you had met David Hoffman. And so you already mentioned. That. Oh, I, I, yeah. I, uh, uh, we've been to, we've been visitors. I've, uh, we used, I used to go to the world tea expo every year and it, occasionally he would be on the same plane with me wow. as, a, as I was going there. So we know, <laughs> we know him pretty well. We've been to his house and he's served us. He's, he's, he's such a character, but He's also into um, really uh, um, antique forms of wheat, which he grows or has grown for him. And so we've had tortillas and tea, <laughs> tortillas of these ancient ancient uh, uh, heirloom varieties of wheat. Uh, he's a great. He's a. He's a. He's. A, but he, you know, the woman I went to uh, Taiwan with, who unfortunately died just. A, Two or three years later, um, was Winnie Yu another another pioneer of uh, yeah, the she, tea the tea Renaissance in yeah, she, uh, the United she States. She was the founder of Taeons. and uh, okay, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, do do you know the people uh, at Far Leaves Tea? I've I've had some of their tea. I don't know. I don't know them. They're they are not one of our primary vendors. There's but there's a lot of really. You know, the, the point is that there's a lot of really interesting uh, people to know in the tea world. And it's a, there's a kind of camaraderie. About Gaetano Maeda. No, although I have a friend, we have a, a chef friend in Japan called 
uh, Maeda, that's his first name actually, <laughs> but, uh, but no, not, the, not Gaetano. Well, you'll have to meet him one of these days. Um, <clears throat> he, I think he's the narrator on that film with David Hoffman in it that Les Blank made. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually <laughs> sponsored a showing of that at Sonoma State University you, where you, David David and Les Blank were present. If you look very carefully, you can spot uh, me and the audience in one of the shots. And the, the back top of, of Rob, my head. Because yeah, <laughs> I'm a lot shorter than Stuart. Right. <laughs> That's great. I'm a late comer to all, to the tea world, but I um, I'm I'm really happy I ran into to it. Yeah, Good. and I, I met it. I met came to it through Gaetano, <clears throat> but in any case, uh, that's great to hear about that. Um, I'm thinking that we're getting. This has been a very nice conversation, and I appreciate um, you taking this time. I wanted to not say goodbye before asking you, Stuart, about your flute playing. Uh, good idea. Just, just talk about that. A yeah, little. so I, I play uh, uh, shakuhachi, which is a, a Japanese bamboo flute. So it's, um, you'll often encounter this uh, uh, sound in uh, Japanese movies, like uh, Akira Kurosawa movies and uh, the like, but um, it, it has its origins uh, after the flute was imported into Japan and uh, from China, it uh, uh, incubated for a long time, I think, in uh, the Buddhist monasteries. And so there's a tradition of older pieces uh, that are very natural sounding, arrhythmic, uh, called Hankyoku. And then the instrument, as it evolved, uh, got co-opted into the court tradition along with uh, kotos, the stringed instruments. And so there's a classical repertoire. And now there's even a modern repertoire for shakuhachi. But the thing about the instrument is it's difficult. It, its reputation is it's difficult to play because uh, you really have to form a very precise umbature with your lips in order to get sound out of the instrument. And it has a lot of uh, sonic variability because the angle of uh, the flute um, makes a difference in terms of the tone. The strength of the breath makes a difference with the tone. So in order to really master the dynamics, there's a lot going on in terms of position, uh, uh, tension in the lips, movement of the tongue, and things like that. And so what what um, got me into it was that as in high school, I sort of taught myself to play recorder. So I was used to playing flutes that stuck out in front of me. And my sister was into Irish music, my older sister, and she gave me a penny whistle. And so I learned to play that and uh, would, you know, took that to college with me and would play that here and there. But um, when I was in graduate school, a friend of mine was into shakuhachi and uh, uh, he uh, got a, his wife, his, his girlfriend at the time, now his wife bought him a nicer instrument and he had a practice instrument. So he lent that to me. And so I kind of held on to it for about uh, 11 years to the intention of uh, playing it. And I finally realized at some point, I better do something with this or just give it back to him. So in the summer of 1996, when our family was on a family vacation and on the Mendocino coast, I, I made the commitment that I would play this thing 10 minutes a day, uh, regardless of what noise I made. <laughs> 
and uh, and just keep going until I could uh, actually make a uh, consistent sound. And so over several months, I was learned how to make the notes and I bought some books and started to read the Japanese notation. And at some point I wanted a teacher to go a step further. And um, so at a point where my spiritual teacher, Robert and I were at a Shakuhachi Makers workshop in Willits, he, I asked him if he could recommend a teacher and he recommended this gentleman named Masayuki Koga. And so I um, signed up for a lesson. He was giving lessons in San Francisco at the time. And in my first lesson, I took this wooden flute I had, which I was sure had very great limitations because it limited the sound I could make. And he, so he said, here, let me see the instrument. So he started to play it. And immediately I knew, well, okay, it's not the flute. <laughs> but then he, but then he um, uh, described three ways of playing the flute. So the first way was kind of just playing the notes kind of just, just mechanically. And so he'd, he'd play and it, and it sounded kind of choppy and, you know, uh, uh, you know, just not very interesting. He says, now I'm going to play with my whole body. And so then he played and, and it was much more melodious and uh, 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 more beautiful. And then he said, now I'm going to play with uh, something outside of myself. And he played. And when he did, I felt something in my heart. You wow. know, I, uh, I felt, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and that's when I knew, oh, well, this, this is interesting. <laughs> so, so I uh, became a, uh, a, long-term student of uh, Koga Sensei. And lately, particularly now in the, uh, um, the uh, pandemic, we've been doing a lot of Zoom lessons together. So I've actually increased the frequency of uh, my study. And what that, what's become is this, you know, really his master level attention on my plane is uh, really, intimately bringing my attention into subtle movements of musculature in my body and uh, attention with what my breath is doing, what my tongue is doing, the tension in my lips, the movement of energy through my body, the movement of energy outside of my body, the emotional inspiration and thought form that I hold when I'm playing. All of these factors uh, come together and it's really like juggling because there's like 10 different things and you know, he'll tell me to focus on one thing and then I'll forget, you know, six of the others. But eventually in the space of a lesson, when I start to be able to kind of hold them all together and sort of go between them, then suddenly the quality of the music transforms entirely and, and there's a, a quality to the sound that's uh, alive and has uh, energy and has uh, depth to it. and. And, and so my practice lately has been just this intensive focus on master techniques. Koga's never been that interested in, you know, teaching r repertoire. You know, we, we have pieces of music we've played for, that I've played literally for, uh, you know, 25 years that are, um, you know, the same pieces. And yet they're different every time I play them because I'm bringing a different quality of attention. So in terms of, you know, fourth way practice, the way I, I look at this is this is really very precise work on both the emotional and the physical center, because uh, the feeling is involved, the attention, conscious attention to the body and the and the unified movement of energy through that the system is 
really uh, uh, exercised in this practice. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, his, um, his representation of what the, the mind should do is kind of like um, the policeman, you know, the, the, the mind's function is just, just, just to remember to point attention to these different things that I should be doing. But as soon as the mind tries to do anything, it falls apart. But it can be it can be very useful to uh, just you know keep pointing at different things and 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 then but then my attention has to go to that place in my body in order to play from uh, you know so the, the the mind can be engaged and like a like a you know a dog in a yard that has a job you know it can be pretty useful uh, when it tries to take over the show though then it, it then things kind of fall apart and so. My practice has been a, a, a constant oscillation between these extremes. Wow, that is a beautiful articulation of. <clears throat> you really helped me understand something. Not not that I ever tried to understand about the flute, but wow, thank you for that. That's amazing. Your your uh, the clarity and touching on all those aspects of it. Um. I don't know if I asked you this in an earlier conversation, but have you ever heard of a guy named Andy Couturier? Yes, a, yes, we've had him as a guest in our store. I thought maybe we'd... Uh, right, right. And uh, and I was trying to get him to... Um, in fact, I have a copy right there, the of his of book, stack there. The, Abun the Abundance of Less, right, on my, right in my site here on my desk. Um, of course, his uh, section in there on Kogan, I think it's Kogan Murata. Uh, mm -hmm. You've read yeah. that, right? I've read the book, yeah. yeah. Although it's been a long time. I mean, I haven't read, to be honest, I read the early version, which was quite a different looking book. And I have read parts. I tried to read the updated version, the parts in this latest version of his book. Well, I happened to, to, to meet him and I read his book and, and that thing that stood out to me beyond all the other wonderful things in that book is the little section on the flute player Kogan mm -hmm. and then the joy that that Kogan had found and how he apparently just plays one or two or three or four uh, pieces and that's and the way you've you've brought you've brought to light the depth and the uh and the richness in in what really um, it was just a statement in the book, and you can accept it or not. And it seems for what you know, a Westerner, <clears throat> how could a person play the same song every day and be joyful? But uh, you've made that uh, you've you've opened that up beautifully. So. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting uh, point when you think about sacred art. That uh, I think about this with the uh, Tibetan tonkas, for instance. You know, a very rigid form, and yet the difference between a masterwork and a student work is uh, profound. And, you know, the, it, it's like sacred art is all about the how and not the what. So, yeah. and, and, and I think in, in our Western world, we often give short uh, uh, shift to the, the how, and we focus on the what, you know, you know, so we want to have more songs. And I, I know this from people, I, you know, I, I, you know, they see uh, friends of mine who practice shakuhachi in different traditions, you know, they, they're interested in collecting pieces of music. And, uh, and that's okay. 
but when I listen to the sound, it, it, it doesn't do the same thing that Koga's sound does. And, mm. and so it's, it's kind of a matter of taste. And I think, I think often, I mean, it's true with meditation too. I mean, uh, why, why would someone sit, you know, <laughs> uh in a room you know for hours of, uh at a time you know to you know that that by a western standard that seems pretty boring and right. yet and yet that that how is so transformational or why in our co-meditation practice that stuart referred to earlier would you um practice for hours being able to witness cleanly the manifestations and expressions of others you know it's a it's a it's a different taste <laughs> yeah and and if a person hasn't had the taste it's hard for just words to give you that right exactly exactly right yeah, it's, it's almost impossible you can't really do it you just have to have the experience right uh, thank you guys for uh this lovely conversation together. Well, I've, I've had a very good time yeah. with it, and uh, I appreciated your your questions and your responses, um, etc. Thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome, and uh, it's probably going to take me a while to get this. Uh, if you can send me the audio file. Yeah, it will. It'll take me a while to get it transcribed, um, but what I would do is send it back to you, and you guys can go through it. Uh, correct, appreciate it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I would put it up on my website. You could do something if you wanted, but uh, that's what we'll do with it. And yeah, uh, I mean, if I if I can pull out a uh, a show out of it, I might do that. Just uh, if that's okay with you, yeah, sure. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to touch on. Well, yes, okay. One more thing, which which relates very much to what you've already said in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And it has to do, I, I mean, I, th I can frame it in the mystical positivist kind of contradictory sort of, uh, or apparently contradictory terms uh, mm -hmm. that uh, there's a term that uh, I don't know if it's in wide usage. I'd never heard it put this way, inner empiricism. <clears throat> heard that. You know? I, I, I haven't, although um, it, it resonates with what I was describing earlier as um, uh, as what I learned from my own teacher as being about the provisional uh, relationship to conclusions about what's going on within me and outside me. In other words... Um, uh, I, I, I take empiricism to mean that we are, we are looking at evidence and the thing about evidence is you never, or if a, an empiricist is never closed to more evidence that might be relevant to the question being investigated. Uh -huh. So, so that, uh, uh, aspect of inner empiricism uh, to me is resonant with the attitude that I continue to be open to um, what's going on within inside me and outside of me without 
projecting a, a story, as Stuart was uh, saying earlier, a story or or a set of ideas um, to which my empirical evidence must conform. Yeah, yeah, I think the inner empiricism to me is a different way of saying mystical positivism, and okay. it in the sense that often the mystical, the domain of the mystical is the interior and uh, the principal practice of positivism, you know, as a methodology is in, an empirical one. But, but what I like about inner empiricism is, is the, it's a little more specific. It's a, it's less poetic than a mystical positivist uh, and uh, in a sense, less ironic, but it, it's specific in the sense that we can take our interior experiences and with sufficient sincerity and sufficient clarity of mind, we can make efforts and see the results. And over time, based off of a number of results from efforts that we make, we can test and validate claims that are made in particular traditions and one of the things we appreciate about the the fourth way as a teaching in the, uh, born in the 20th century is that it um, used the language of empiricism and made was very emphatic that you know one should not believe anything that one hasn't verified for oneself and so this principle i think <clears throat> in any legitimate spiritual teaching that that claim is made but <clears throat> the um inner empiricism is the way of actually taking those steps and actually testing uh, truth claims in our own experience. I think you've, uh, you've gone right to it. I first uh, heard the term through Jacob Needleman. Yeah. Um, and I also ran into it, maybe not quite exactly specifically, but essentially exactly the same from a man named Alan Wallace. Yep. Yeah, I was going to think about uh, B. A. Allen Wallace. Uh, We've had him on the show. Yeah, we we had him on the show once, uh, uh, and uh, I think I ran into that notion in one of his early books. Uh, he is very specific about first person experience and actually the science of first person. You know, right. Um, so there's there's the practice. That it isn't a given. It is not a given. It's um, in fact, he set up, you may have heard of this, the Center for Contemplative Research yeah. along in Italy. And what they're doing is giving a small number of people um, a sort of a, a residency that can last from six months to maybe many years, in which that person can practice these two or three particular forms of uh, meditation, probably Vajrayana forms, but and basically in the effort to achieve the capacity of equanimity or a kind of free attention so that one is capable of witnessing without getting caught in the reactions. And mm -hmm. this is not, this is no small matter, but in any case, that's exactly, uh, then one sees uh, as it is, if you can find that anyway. This is, for me, still rather theoretical. I suppose I had a moment or two moments, but anyway. 
Okay, well, that's that's a heady or a high level to end on. <laughs> Hopefully, not too heady. <laughs> that's the problem. You know? I'll just say it, it, ends, high... it ends. It ends where it ends, like yes. everything else. It's an open, open, open place to end. Right. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Richard Whitaker in which he brings his considerable interviewing skills to bear on interviewing the Mystical Positivist hosts, myself, Stuart Goodnick, and Robert Schmidt, Spiritual Director of Taiyu Meditation Center. Richard Whitaker is the founding editor in 1998 of the magazine Works and Conversations. He is also the West Coast editor of Parabola Magazine. His connections with art go back over 40 years, including photography, ceramics, painting, and sculpture. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist on KRJFLP 92.3 FM in Santa Rosa, simulcast on KWTF 88.1 FM in Bodega Bay. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Donate and support to Power the Tower at krjf.org.